For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Section 23 of Lives of Greek Statesmen by George William Cox. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Themistocles, Part 7. Leaving the city whose maritime supremacy was his own creation, he betook himself to Argos. But the Spartans had undertaken the task of hunting him down, and during his sojourn they renewed the old charge with increased pertinacity. Hosanius had been dead now for more than ten years, and the fact that no fresh evidence was forthcoming speaks volumes for the motives of his accusers. They succeeded, however, in obtaining an order for his arrest at Athens, and Themistocles, on receiving the tidings, fled to Corsera, an island over which he is said, for whatever reason, to have had the claims of a benefactor. Unable to defend him, and unwilling to give him up, the islanders conveyed him to the mainland, where he found himself driven to enter the house of the Molossian chief Admetus, to whom he had in times past we know not how, given some cause of offence. Admetus was not at home, but placing her child in his arms, his wife told him to take his place as a suppliant at the hearth. On the return of the chief, Themistocles put before him candidly the exact state of his fortunes, and Admetus, generously forgiving the old wrong, conveyed him to Pydna, a stronghold of the Macedonian prince Alexandros. At Pydna he took passage in a merchant ship going to Ionia, but a storm carried the vessel to Naxos, which was then being besieged by an Athenian force. Revealing himself to the captain, Themistocles, it is said, threatened to charge him with sheltering traders for a bribe, unless he kept his men from landing until the weather should allow them to go on their way. In about thirty-six hours the wind lulled, and the ship sailed to Ephesus. Journeying thence into the interior, he sent to Artaxerxes, who had just succeeded his father Xerxes, a letter thus worded, I, Themistocles, have come to thee, the man who has done most harm to thy house, while I was compelled to resist thy father, but who also did him most good by withholding the Greeks from destroying the bridge over the Hellespont, while he was journeying from Attica to Asia. And now I am here, able to do thee much good, but persecuted by the Greeks on the score of my good will to thee. But I wish to tarry a year, and then to talk with thee about mine errand. The young king, the story goes on to say, at once granted his request, and when Themistocles, having spent the year in thoroughly learning Persian, went up to the court, he acquired over the monarch an almost unbounded influence. After a time, the length of which is not stated, he returned to Asia Minor to do what might be needed to fulfill his promise to the king that he would make him as his father wished to be, lord of all Hellas. 
here he lived in great magnificence having three cities magnesia lampsacos and meus to supply him with bread wine and vegetables at magnesia so the story goes he died either from disease or from a draught of bull's blood which he drank because he knew that he could not bring about what he had undertaken to accomplish for the king his bones were brought away by his kinsfolk and buried secretly in attica because the bones of a traitor had no right to the soil which he betrayed but the magnesians would have it that they still lay in their market-place in the splendid sepulchre which they exhibited as his tomb such it may be said was the authorized and perhaps after the lapse of some twenty or thirty years after his death the most widely accepted form of the story of the great statesman's later years but there were other versions which stand out significantly in contradiction to it of these one related that instead of regarding him as a benefactor of the royal house the persian king had put a price of two hundred talents upon his head another stated that when themistocles reached ionia he found it impossible to get to susa except by availing himself of the offer of lysitheides who pretending that he was conveying to the palace a stranger for the king's harem brought thither in this strange disguise the founder of the maritime empire of athens another tradition tells us that mandani the sister of xerxes demanded the surrender of themistocles in order that she might wreck upon him her wrath for the death of her sons who had fallen at salamis that he was actually put upon his trial to answer the accusations of mandani and that owing to the skill which he had acquired in the use of the persian language he was triumphantly acquitted by way of illustrating more vividly these changes in his life other stories were framed which exhibited him as undergoing instruction in the methods of oriental prostration or which represented the persian king as unable to sleep for excess of joy at having themistocles the athenian in his possession and as bestowing upon him a beautiful persian wife by way of showing his gratitude for past benefits and his confidence for the future these various traditions for the most part exclude each other but the one first given is supposed to have the general sanction of approval of the historian thucydides what then in reference to these stories is the value of the judgment of thucydides that few historians have surpassed him in his power of weighing and sifting the evidence of living witnesses is beyond question so far as examination and cross-examination could carry him he spared no pains in getting at the truth of facts but his own task lay in the region of contemporary history and was only indirectly concerned with written documents or with written literature in any shape over such documents he failed to exercise the vigilance with which he scrutinized oral testimony and we have therefore to supply his shortcomings if we would avoid doing injustice to a man with whose character slander has beyond doubt been more than usually busy it cannot however be said that thucydides was the contemporary of themistocles who died probably during the year in which he was born and in the review which he has given us of his career 
the absence of all evidence tending to show that the people generally approved of the judgment passed upon him by his opponents is especially striking nay in all accounts handed down to us and not one comes from any contemporary writer there is not a word to show that the common people shared the opinions of the knot of his persecutors while many expressions show the strength of their affection for him nearly a quarter of a century had passed from the time of his ostracism before thucydides was old enough to form any judgment on his life and character and during this period the enemies of themistocles had done their best to heighten the prejudice which is fed by exaggerated contrasts themistocles began life in poverty he closed it in wealth and dishonour aristides was preeminent for the purity of his motives and his justice was proved it is said by the absolute want which left his family dependent on the public bounty a bribe for aristides had no temptation but the lust of gold explained in themistocles the simultaneous action of contradictory motives such as perhaps no other man ever exhibited when mud is thrown in large quantities some of it is sure to stick and the charges of corruption multiplied against themistocles were taken without evidence by his political opponents as proof that he was prepared to undo the work of his whole life for the sake of that of which he had already an abundance what his wealth may have been before his ostracism we cannot say we have traced so far as our power goes the history of the thirty talents bestowed upon him by the eubians at artemisian and the two-and-twenty talents which if he received this bribe remained after the sum spent on eurybiades and adamantus may have formed part or the main bulk of the sum which his friends conveyed to him in asia both from athens and from argos even if we put aside the stories of vast riches which his friends were unable to take away from attica lack of money can scarcely be regarded as furnishing for him a sufficient motive to crime yet it is greed of gain and this alone which is said to have determined all his actions after his flight from argos the result being a deliberate but contemptibly unsuccessful attempt to undo the work of his whole political life what this work was we have seen perhaps with sufficient clearness so great had been the impulse imparted by him to athenian enterprise so thoroughly had it strengthened the character of the poorer citizens that his rival aristides gave his aid in carrying out that maritime policy which at the outset he had opposed in this business of his life he had displayed a rapidity of perception which in the opinion of thucydides gave to his maturest judgments the appearance of intuition a fertility of resource and a readiness in action which never failed him under any difficulties he had shown a courage rising steadily in proportion to the dangers which he had to face and he had kept those around him true in some degree to the common cause when a blind and stupid terror seemed to make all possibility of united action hopeless it is of such a man as this that we are asked to believe not that he had been poor and became rich 
not that he had an eye to his own comfort as well as to the welfare of his country, but that almost from the beginning, at all events from a time preceding the Battle of Salamis, he distinctly contemplated the prospect of knocking to pieces the fabric which he was laboriously building up, and of seeking a home in the palace of the king on whose power and schemes he was first to deal a deadly blow. With a wonderful assurance we are asked to believe that at the very time when with astonishing strength of will he was driving the allies into a battle which they dreaded, he was sending to the Persian king a message which should stand him in good stead when he should come as an exile to the court of Susa, that he deceived his enemy to the utter ruin of his fleet in order to win his favor against the time of trouble which he knew to be coming, that he looked indulgently on the guilt of the Spartan Pisanius, the colleague of Aristides at Plataea, although he despised the weakness of his intellect, and that on the death of the Spartan regent he took up and carried on the pitiable and silly work of treachery which in his hands had come to nothing. As if this were not enough, we are asked further to believe that in the Persian palace he actually found the refuge which he had pictured to himself, that his claim to favor was admitted without question, that he promised to enslave his country, and for twelve or fourteen years received the revenues of large towns to enable him to redeem his word, and that he died without making a single effort to fulfill any part of the promise which he had made to the Persian king. With whatever portion of the story we may choose to deal, we shall find that it comes to pieces in the handling. We may take first this tale of the assignment of the revenues of Lamsacos, Meus, and Magnesia for his sustenance. The tale refutes itself by implying, or rather asserting, that nearly twenty or perhaps more than twenty years after the establishment of the Delian Confederacy, two cities lying almost under the shadow of Mount Michale, and a third on the shores of the Hellespont, could be made by a Persian king to yield up their wealth to his favorites. If he could thus treat these towns, he might put any others along the Aegean coasts to the same use, and thus the work of the Greeks in destroying the Persian fleets and armies is reduced to nothing. If the resources of these cities were at the disposal of Artaxerxes, there was no reason why his tribute-gatherers should not be seen in every Ionian city, and therefore no reason why his armies should not take ample vengeance for the revolt which followed the catastrophe of Michale. It follows that if this tale is to be believed, the account given of the assessment of Aristides must be altogether rejected. The items of this assessment, the sum total of which amounted to 460 talents, are not given, but the assessment seems to have been based on the amount of tribute paid to the Persian king by the cities on the eastern shores of the Aegean, and as the tribute of the nomos or district, which according to the arrangement of Darius, included the Ionians, Magnesians, Aeolians, and some others on the continent, amounted to four hundred talents in silver, the remaining sixty talents would represent the contributions of the islanders. Yet here we have the inhabitants of certain towns, 
as Sesta's members of the Delian Confederation, still at the beck and call of the Persian despot. It is true that the obstacles to be surmounted by the confederated Greeks, even when the Persian fleet had been destroyed at Mikali, were formidable enough. It was then found to be a hard and sometimes an impracticable task to dislodge the Persian garrisons from the cities which they occupied, and the Thracian Doriscas, where Xerxes had reviewed his mighty force after passing into Europe, was still in the hands of a Persian governor when Herodotus was composing the later books of his history. Doriscas, however, was on Thracian soil. But the story which represents Artaxerxes as giving three Hellenic cities to Themistocles is absurd, because it attributes to him the absolute lordship over a vast territory in which his authority was a thing of the past. Probably by that time he retained not a single port in that long and beautiful strip of land which had formed the brightest jewel in the crown of the Lydian kings. End of section 23section twenty four of lives of greek statesmen by george william cox this librivox recording is in the public domain read by pamela nagami themistocles part eight if we wish for further reasons for rejecting the tale we may find them in the fact that long ago when pausanias was spinning his poor web of treason spartan authority was able to reach him in colonae in the troad and that he found himself compelled to obey the messenger who bade him follow on pain in case of refusal of being declared the enemy of the people whereas now during years spent in luxurious ease at magnesia themistocles could bid defiance to his opponents or persecutors at athens whose order for his arrest had nevertheless driven him away from Argos. So far as the Spartans are concerned, the case against Themistocles resolves itself into a charge of complicity with Posanius. If this charge is refuted, nothing else remains. But although the accusation is made with sufficient boldness and circumstantiality, it has little substance or none. The Spartans spoke of proofs of his complicity, but Thucydides does not say that these proofs were exhibited to the Athenians, or that they could be exhibited. Nothing but the clearest evidence could establish such a charge, and no evidence whatever is forthcoming. The circumstances of the two men are also as different as they could well be. If we know anything at all about Themistocles, we know that he prized the magnificent polity which grew with the growth of Athenian freedom, and it is impossible that he could forget his old devotion with the ease of a man whose country was for him nothing more than a school of rigid and perhaps hateful military bondage. Entrusted with the kingly power from the accident that his nephew the king was a minor, Posanius had to look forward to a descent from his high authority at no very distant day, and the iron discipline of Spartan club life had manifestly long been to him intolerably irksome. Apart from this, he was simply a man who had to carry out the traditional system of his country, and who fought at Plataea 
with perhaps the bravery of his ancestors, and certainly with no sounder judgment. His work, therefore, was ended with his victory in the field. The mind of Themistocles, after the victory of Salamis, was turned to the momentous task of building up the Athenian confederacy and laying the foundation of Athenian empire. And this work, we must especially note, needed the fullest concentration of mind and will. Of the large number of personal anecdotes connected with and designed to illustrate the treasons of his later years, few call for serious consideration. The story of Plutarch that Themistocles intended to burn the allied fleet at Pagasai is absurdly opposed to the whole line of policy which he is known to have been carrying out at the time. The Greek fleet could not have wintered at Pagasai when Pagasai was Thessalian and hostile to the allies, and the Athenians would only have weakened themselves by destroying the ships of all the other cities, while it was yet uncertain whether they might not be again attacked by the Phoenician fleet of Xerxes. Some of the tales impute to Themistocles a folly of which probably only his eupatrid slanderers could be guilty. He must have fallen into a second childhood before he could have even thought of comparing himself to a plane tree which the men who had sought its shelter during the storm were now cutting down. To the same class of stories belongs the anecdote which speaks of Themistocles as telling his children in the days of his exile how greatly they would have been losers if he had not been ruined. The tale points to ruin financially, and in this sense Themistocles was never ruined. In any other sense it is absurd, nay, it is impossible, to suppose that the memory of his ancient greatness could suggest to him nothing better than a pitiable satisfaction with his present state of degradation. There remain the questions of his personal corruption and of his negotiations with the Persian kings. As to the former, we can lay hands on nothing more definite than his alleged compact with the Eubians. But if we accept the fact of this agreement, to what does it amount? It is only by a figure of speech, and this a very strained one, that a man can be said to be bribed or persuaded into doing that which he has already made up his mind irrevocably to do. To assert that Themistocles was tempted by this bribe to do that which he had been wishing and striving with all his might to accomplish without the money seems something like a contradiction in terms. We are only told how he employed eight out of the thirty talents received from the Eubians, and so far as these are concerned, the corruption lay with Eurybiades and Adamantus, not with himself. All governments have a certain expenditure on what is called secret service, the items of which are never published, and Themistocles ought not to be judged more harshly than modern statesmen. It is true that no other instances are mentioned of his employing the argument of bribery during the war, but we have several occasions in which the emergency was vastly more pressing when he did not employ it. His failure to offer a bribe to men who had already taken one is inexplicable except on the ground that he had not the means for doing so, and that the sum which he received from the Eubians has been enormously exaggerated. On the alleged bribing of the whole board of the Spartan ephors, 
it is unnecessary to waste words. His negotiations with Xerxes and his successor were carried on, it is said, partly by messages sent through Sycanas, partly by letters, and partly in personal interviews. The first message is in all probability historical. It seems at first sight a masterly device for bringing about the destruction of the Persian fleet, and the feeling of suspicion is roused only when we seem to see that it is practically superfluous. Still the message may have hastened by a few hours the movement for which Themistocles was anxious, and those few hours, by giving the Confederates time to fall back from the Salaminian Gulf on the Corinthian Isthmus, would have disconcerted all his plans and quenched all his hopes. The chance that his message might render this retreat impossible was a very sufficient reason for sending it. For the second message, the most circumstantial account asserts that Themistocles thought by means of it to secure the gratitude of the Persian king and a refuge, if trouble should befall him, in his palace at Susa. As to the real feelings which under the circumstances this second message must have stirred up in the mind of Xerxes, we can be under no doubt. They would be feelings of overpowering indignation at his treachery and his assurance. But the ascription of such a motive to Themistocles at such a time is the most astonishing thing in the whole narrative. No man can at once and at the same time be actuated by two entirely distinct and conflicting motives, and this is only saying that he cannot at the same time serve God and mammon. But this story represents Themistocles as intent with the most passionate devotion on setting his country free, and yet as also not less earnestly bent on securing a place of refuge among the very enemies whom he is driving out. Some notion of such a condition of mind may perhaps be formed if we should suppose that when before the Battle of Trafalgar Nelson warned every man that England looked to him to do his duty, he had already done his best to secure the goodwill of Napoleon Bonaparte, whose fleets he was advancing to encounter. If we refuse to admit the possibility of such double action in the case of Nelson, we have precisely the same justification for refusing to admit it in the case of Themistocles. We must not, however, forget that if in the version of Herodotus Themistocles holds out to the Persian sovereign the prospect of an unmolested march, there were other, and it would seem more popular versions, which spoke of him as terrifying the king by warnings that he might be intercepted on the road. We may, if we please, say that the sending of the second message may be accounted for by the mere love of exercising an art in which a man excels, in other words, that the satisfaction of conducting an intrigue is a sufficient motive for entering upon it. Such a supposition is scarcely consistent with the judgment of the character of Themistocles given by Thucydides, although it may harmonize well with the spirit of those anecdotes which we have dismissed as really beneath our notice. We come now to the written communications of Themistocles with the Persian kings. The Spartans chose to regard him as an accomplice in the schemes of Posenius, but they failed altogether to produce any evidence that he took any active part in those schemes, or that he knew anything about them. 
nor are we told that any documents were discovered after the death of Posenius, which established the guilt of Themistocles. We can therefore deal only with the letter which Themistocles, on reaching Asia, is said to have sent to Artaxerxes. This letter is couched in terms of intolerable insolence and unblushing falsehood. The plea that the instinct of self-preservation alone had led him to resist and repel the invasion of Xerxes must to his son, who knew something about the medism of the Boeotians, the Salians, and Argives, have appeared not less ridiculous than false. The assertion that as soon as he could safely do so, he had compensated his injuries with greater benefits, must have seemed a monstrous and impudent lie. But we have further to ask whence Thucydides obtained the letter of which he professes to give us the words. If Themistocles wrote such a letter, the original must have gone to Artaxerxes. In this case, we must suppose one of three things. Either Themistocles kept a copy of it, or Artaxerxes sent back the original, or allowed a transcript to be made. The last degree of unlikelihood attaches to all these suppositions. The original could be recovered only from the archives of Susa, and apart from the unlikelihood that such documents would be preserved there at all, there is the far greater unlikelihood that they would ever be given up to the king's enemies. If these alternatives fail us, one conclusion only is possible, namely, that the letter as we have it is a forgery. But whether this or any other letter was sent or not, the stories of the journey of Themistocles to Susa and of his sojourn there are pure fictions, and hence we can form no judgment of the motives which led Artaxerxes to befriend Themistocles or to bestow on him his lavish bounty, if lavish it was. We are confronted by the fact that during the long series of years which he is said to have spent at Magnesia, he made not the least effort to fulfill his promise to the Persian king that he would bring all Greece under his sway, and this fact must be taken as proving conclusively that no direct enterprise against the freedom of the Hellenic world could have been involved in his engagement. The supposition that he had so pledged himself gave rise to the story that his death was caused by taking poison in order to avoid the obligation. But to this story Thucydides gives no credence. The version of the tale preserved by Diodorus is even more absurd. According to this tradition, his death was a masterly stratagem to preclude all further attacks from Persia against the freedom of his country. Xerxes, living still, it would seem, some fifteen years after the date assigned for his murder, proposed to try his luck in another invasion of Greece and to appoint Themistocles general-in-chief of his armament. Taking him at his word, the Athenian exile made the king swear solemnly that he would do nothing without him. This promise was ratified over a sacrifice, and Themistocles, drinking some of the victim's blood, fell dead on the spot, leaving Xerxes bound to abandon all thought of retrieving the disasters of Salamis, Plataea, and Mycale. That Themistocles entered into no such contract as that which is ascribed to him in the sketch of his life by Thucydides is manifest. But we should be rash if we committed ourselves to the conclusion that he entered into no contract at all. From the time of his leaving Pydna, 
he passes into a region where historical truth has but a sickly and feeble growth in the details of the stories which have gathered around him we have found nothing clear nothing consistent but assuredly he had it in his power to do good service for the persians and without plotting the destruction of athens or the enslavement of western hellas he might yet have done much to check the growth of the athenian empire the rapid extension of this empire threatened to deprive the persian king of some of his fairest provinces and the latter might well promise a splendid reward to themistocles if he could guarantee him against further losses some such promise he may have made and if he made it it would be a disgraceful and dishonourable sequel to a career of astonishing splendour but the whole of this portion of his life is wrapped in mist at first sight it seems strange that he should give much heed to the machinations of his enemies at athens while he was living quietly as an ostracised man at argos or that he should have shrunk from returning home to undergo a second formal trial but the fact of his ostracism showed that he had at least six thousand opponents at athens and he must have known better than we can know the measure and strength of their ill-will and the chances of their succeeding in bringing about a miscarriage of justice he may also have felt strongly that the verdict of acquittal obtained on his first trial should have served as a bar to a second criminal persecution although it might be no bar to his exile by sentence of ostracism he would thus be justified in urging that a second accusation was a virtual condemnation before his cause could be heard if his enemies were unscrupulous he might well regard the result with apprehension and may have judged wisely in declining to appear before them it is a question on which we have no means of reaching a decisive or satisfactory conclusion and must content ourselves with regretting that he found it more prudent to avoid his enemies than to face them we know enough however of the conditions of the age to be convinced that the position of a man who brought on himself the full force of eupatrid jealousy might have been a perilous one even though he might have the main body of the citizens strongly on his side we know how this feeling worked in the earlier days of the roman republic and to what an extent the making of history was in the hands of the fierce patrician faction all that we can say is that the disposition of the eupatrids at athens was less bloodthirsty although even here its darker side came out not many years later in the murder of ephialtes these facts helped to clear away many perplexities in the later history of themistocles and justify us in speaking with tolerable definiteness about his career not merely in its early stages but as a whole we are probably very near the mark if we conclude that from first to last he well deserved the warm affection which his countrymen generally felt for him during his life and with which they cherished his memory after his death that his ostracism was due wholly to the exertions of the oligarchic party stimulated by arguments or the bribes of the spartans that the order for his arrest which made him fly from argos was in like manner the result of spartan intrigues acting on the virulent animosity felt toward him by his personal enemies 
that during the years of his exile these enemies strung together a vast multitude of slanders which would be readily taken up and propagated by the oligarchic factions in every city that in the making of history these factions had thus far a power altogether beyond that of the main body of the citizens and that thus in the course of thirty or forty years these reports were worked into the shape of the traditional narrative preserved to us by thucydides of the details of this narrative we have seen that in almost every instance we have versions which contradict and exclude each other nor is there any evidence forthcoming to lessen our legitimate satisfaction in the result of an inquiry which acquits of treason one of the greatest of athenian statesmen and makes his whole career intelligible if his acts were sometimes blameworthy we have to remember that he was treated with gross injustice we can readily suppose that in his time of exile in asia he looked back on the past with some anger and resentment but these feelings would have for their object only that party or faction whose enmity it was impossible to appease not the main body of the people by whom he knew himself to be beloved themistocles is said to have lived two and twenty years from the date of his ostracism if it be so he died in the year four forty nine b c the magnesians pointed with pride to a magnificent sepulchre in their agora or market-place as containing his bones but a counter-tradition assigned them a resting-place within the harbour of piraeus his sons we are told dedicated in the parthenon a historical picture which exhibited to his countrymen the features and form of the great statesman and leader to whom athens owed her continued existence and her splendid empire end of section twenty four section twenty five of lives of greek statesmen by george william cox this librivox recording is in the public domain read by pamela nagami posenius part one the number of spartan statesmen is not great and if the career of posenius had ended on the field of plataea there would scarcely have been sufficient reason for regarding him as a statesman at all but the mission with which he was charged after that great battle shows that his countrymen looked on him as a man fitted to uphold the supremacy of sparta and he may be taken as to a certain degree an exponent of spartan policy more especially as an attempt was made to carry out this policy systematically in the latter portion of the peloponnesian war some two generations later posenius is sometimes spoken of as if he had been a spartan king he was never king although for many years he exercised a power such as spartan kings seldom attained his father cleombrotus was a brother of leonidas who fell at thermopylae and became regent in the name of the young son of leonidas cleombrotus lived only a few months longer and on his death posenius succeeded to the regency 479 b c his accession to power came at a crisis of supreme importance for greece and for europe the persian fleet ruinously defeated at salamis 
had made its way as best it could across the aegean and xerxes with his cumbrous bodyguard was marching hurriedly to the hellespont but bardonius with the persian warriors whose fathers had followed cyrus from victory to victory remained behind with the fixed purpose that he would achieve the conquest of greece or die from boeotia mardonius had found his way again to athens and the city whose tyrants had had the chief share in precipitating the storm of persian invasion on europe was once more in his grasp but his policy differed altogether from that of his master xerxes had been intent only on punishing and humiliating the athenians mardonius was not less steadily bent on winning them over if it should be possible to do so he thought that when they saw their soil again trodden by invading armies while the care of the general protected the city from harm they would probably accept the very lenient terms which he wished to offer to them but the athenians were not so easily caught his passage across the boeotian border was followed immediately by a second migration of the athenian people and ten months after he had entered it with xerxes mardonius stood once more in a silent and desolate city the athenians again banished from their homes told the spartans plainly that unless they should receive immediate help they must devise some means of escape from their present troubles these words clearly indicated submission to persia if no other way should be found to lie open before them and the spartans it is said awoke to a sense of their danger when a citizen of tegea warned them that the isthmian wall would be of very little use if through any compact made with mardonius the athenian fleet should cooperate with the persian land army the spartans were not prepared as yet to look with favour on the future policy of posenius and they took the warning so seriously to heart that on that very night they dispatched five thousand heavily armed soldiers or hoplites under posenius each hoplite being attended by seven helots in all a force of forty thousand men early the next day the envoys of the extra peloponnesian cities informed the ephors that whatever pleas for delay the spartans might urge on the score of the religious obligation of festivals the athenians would now make such terms as might be practicable with the persians the only answer which they received was couched in the enigmatic words they are gone and are already in the arestion on their way to meet the strangers who are gone they asked and who are the strangers our spartans have gone with the helots they answered and the strangers are the persians the envoys hereupon hastened away in amazement but the mystery is easily explained the argives it seems were under a promise to mardonius to prevent by force if force should be needed the passage of any spartan army from the peloponnesus the persian leader felt that his pledge to xerxes would be practically redeemed if athens should submit or if he could make an independent alliance with the athenians and that this result would be best brought about if their country were not devastated and their houses were not burnt but if this was to be avoided 
Attica must not be made a battlefield, and therefore no Peloponnesian army must be allowed to enter it. The promise given by the Argives seemed to ensure him against such a misfortune. This agreement must have come to the knowledge of the ephors, and there is nothing to surprise us in this fact. But it imposed on them, as we may readily understand, the need of absolute secrecy on their part in any military plans which they might wish to carry out. When, owing to this secrecy, their scheme succeeded and the Argives sent word to Athens to say that they had failed to prevent the departure of the Spartans, Mardonius felt that his own designs were finally frustrated. He abandoned Attica to his soldiers, the city was set on fire, and any buildings or walls which had withstood the ravages of the first invasion were thrown down. Attica, however, was ill-suited for cavalry, and in case of defeat he would have to lead his army through narrow and perilous passes. He therefore issued orders for retreat, and the Persian host soon stood on the plain of Thebes. At the Corinthian Isthmus, Posanius was joined by the Peloponnesian allies, and at Eleusis by the Athenians. By virtue of the acknowledged supremacy of Sparta in the Hellenic world, he assumed the chief command over the whole, and the army marched on until from the slopes of Cathairon they looked down on the Persian camp near the northern bank of the Esopus. In this camp the sight of the Greeks, as their ranks deployed on the mountainside, excited little apprehension or fear. The Greeks numbered, it is said, 110,000 men, while Mardonius had 300,000 picked soldiers, but this is simply an expression of overwhelming strength, like the six millions of Xerxes. The decisive conflict was, however, long delayed, owing, it is said, to the soothsayers, who on both sides interpreted the omens as unfavorable to the aggressor. Eleven days had passed away when Artabazos, who, with a guard of, we are told, six myriads, had escorted Xerxes to the Hellespont, advised Mardonius to fall back upon Thebes and trust less to men than to money. In open battle the Persians could not hope for victory, but every Greek might be bought. The advice is manifestly the fiction of a later age. The men assembled in arms on the side of Cathiron were proof of the fact that some Greeks, at least, were not to be won over by bribes. But Artabazos manifestly doubted the military skill of Mardonius, and the sequel showed that he disapproved of his arrangements for the battle in which he died. The patience of Mardonius was exhausted, and sending for his officers, he asked them if they knew of any oracle which foretold the destruction of the Persians on Hellenic ground. All were silent, and Mardonius went on. Since you either do not know, or are afraid to say out what you know, I will tell you myself. There is an oracle which says that Persians coming to Hellas shall plunder the temple at Delphi and then be utterly destroyed. But we are not going against this temple, nor shall we attempt to plunder it, so that this cannot be our ruin. All, therefore, who have any good will to the Persians may be glad, for so far as the oracles are concerned, 
we shall be the conquerors. We shall fight tomorrow. Thus the die was cast, but if we give any credit to the tale, the words of Mardonius must either bring the Delphian expedition altogether into doubt, or prove that he was uttering a conscious lie on a matter which must have been quite as well known to his officers as to himself. During the night which followed this decision, the Macedonian chief Alexandros rode to the outposts of the Athenians, and had with their leaders the interview, the report of which led Posanius, as it is said, to propose that change in the position of the Spartans and Athenians, which we have been compelled to reject as groundless and deliberate fiction. The qualities of Posanius as a military commander were seemingly not preeminent, but there is no need to ascribe to him a most unsoldier-like timidity for a reason which is manifestly a glaring falsehood. On the morning of the eleventh day, the Battle of Plataea may be said practically to have begun. During the whole of the previous day, the Greeks had been sorely pressed by constant charges of the Persian cavalry, and lack of water made it indispensably necessary to shift their ground. In carrying out this measure, Posanius was met on the part of an officer named Amamphoretas, with a resistance which throws a strange light on the state of Spartan discipline at the time. This officer complained that without having been summoned to the previous council, he was now commanded to retreat, not merely against his own judgment, but in violation of the duty which forbade retreat to all Spartans under all circumstances. It is strange that Amamphoretas, should not have heard of the conduct of Eurybiades at Artemisian, and of the pertinacity with which he insisted on retreating from Salamis. If he objected now to a change which was to be made by the whole army, with what indignation must he not have resisted the order which commanded Spartans to place themselves in front of the slaves of the Persians? Yet in that story Amamphoretas offers no resistance to arrangements in the carrying out of which he would himself have to take part. If such had been the fact, he might now have been silenced by the rejoinder that there was no great glory in refusing to do what he had already agreed to do without a word of objection a few hours before. Suspecting that the delay of the Spartans arose from treachery, the Athenians sent to ascertain the real state of things. Their herald found the Spartan leaders disputing hotly with Amamphoretas, who, taking up a large stone with both hands, placed it at the feet of Posanius, saying that thus he gave his vote against the proposal to turn their backs upon the enemy. Calling him a madman, Posanius turned to the herald and bade him go and report how things were, and urge at the same time the immediate union of the Athenian with the Spartan forces. So passed the night. The day was dawning when Posanius gave the decisive order, and Amamphoretas, left alone, thought it prudent to join the main body. This movement in retreat was misinterpreted by Mardonius, who upbraided Artabazos with the fear of the Spartans betrayed by his recent advice, and warned him that the king would assuredly hear of it. This threat probably determined the action of Artabazos later on in the day, 
but for the moment the persians were in exultation and rushed to the attack in disorder even in this tumultuous onset they were formidable and posanius finding himself much distressed by the persian cavalry again besought help from the athenians he added we are told a vehement condemnation of the peloponnesian allies who he said had run away but as they were barely a mile distant they might have been summoned as easily as the athenians thus far posanius whatever may have been the bravery for which he received the prize after the battle had displayed no great military skill but in truth the whole greek army was hardly pressed and the soothsayers still hampered them by forbidding any action except in the way of self-defence this merely passive resistance enabled the persians to make a rampart of their wicker-work shields behind which they shot their arrows with fatal effect at last posanius looking in agony to the temple of hera besought the queen of heaven not to abandon them utterly at the very moment when he offered the prayer the sacrifices were reported favourable and the spartans with a fierce charge bore down the hedge of shields the persians fought with heroic bravery but they had no body armour and they had little discipline or none the death of mardonius virtually decided the issue of the fight the persians in their linen tunics were beaten down by the brazen-coated hoplites and making their way to their fortified camp took refuge behind its wooden bulwarks seeing how the day was going artabazos led his chosen guards from the field and hurried away with all speed into thessaly where the chiefs entertaining him at a splendid banquet prayed for news of the army of mardonius artabazos dexterously parried the question by telling them that he had been dispatched on an urgent errand to thrace and begged them to welcome mardonius when he should follow him with their usual hospitality the victory of the greeks was fearfully complete and the bravery of posanius is said to have largely contributed to it the pictures drawn of him at this time are in marked contrast with the dark and uninviting scenes of his later career in these he is described as a selfish and sensual despot with whom wealth and luxury are of paramount importance in life but at plataea he is the severe and high-minded spartan who feels that the majesty of law has a power beyond that of irresponsible tyrants among the women found in the persian camp was the daughter of hegetoridus of cas who besought deliverance from the shameful state into which the fortune of war had brought her in answer to her prayer posanius assured her that as a suppliant she would in any case be entitled to his protection but that she had on him a further claim as being the child of one of his most intimate friends another anecdote gives his answer to lampon who had urged him to impale the body of mardonius in requital of the indignities to which mardonius with xerxes had subjected the body of leonidas the advice he said deserved to be punished as counsel better befitting savages than greeks leonidas and those who died with him at thermopylae needed no such wretched vindication 
they were amply avenged already in the hecatombs of persian warriors who lay dead around them the third anecdote relates to the dividing of the spoils which are described as astonishingly vast and varied the horse of mardonius was fed it seems at a brazen manger and this manger was now dedicated to athena but with this exception everything was brought into a common stock of this stock a certain proportion was set apart for the gods and supplied the materials for the golden tripod at delphi and for colossal bronze statues of zeus at olympia and the corinthian isthmus of the remainder the tenth part reserved for posanius left him the possessor of enormous wealth and explains in some measure his subsequent career for the moment the lessons taught by the frugal discipline of sparta retained their power over him and ordering a banquet to be prepared after persian fashion with the splendid furniture of xerxes on the one side and placed alongside of a simple laconian meal on another table he is said to have pointed out to the greek generals the folly of the despot who faring thus sumptuously had come to rob the greeks of their sorry food xerxes however had come and posenius could not but know that he had come on no such errand of robbery nor could he be ignorant that the proposals made by mardonius to the athenians would have been regarded as honourable and advantageous by any people to whom political independence was not of paramount value his errand was one not of plunder but simply of subjugation and posenius himself was soon to look upon his policy in another light and make it his own the barb was already in his side and the poison was beginning to course through his veins he was already as regent for one of the spartan kings commander-in-chief of all the greek forces and everything that now happened tended to increase his importance in his own eyes and to tempt him on to schemes of greater ambition End of section twenty five Section twenty six of Lives of a Greek Statesman by George William Cox. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Posenius, Part Two. With the Athenians and the other allies, he renewed the convention which pledged them, we are told, never to make terms with the barbarian, to punish the medizing states by confiscating a tenth of all their property and to leave in ruins all the temples which the persians had demolished as a perpetual remembrance of the great struggle a further provision binding them to maintain a definite force for carrying on the war shows that they were very far from thinking that even for purposes of aggression the power of persia was already broken eleven days after the battle posenius appeared before the walls of thebes to demand the surrender of those citizens who had been most prominent in bringing about the medism of the country especially of two named timagenidas and Atagonas. the refusal of the thebans was followed by a general devastation of the land which led timagenidas to propose 
that the Thebans should find out whether Posenius wanted money. Should it be so, he urged that it should be paid to him out of the public treasury, inasmuch as their medism was the common and voluntary act of all the citizens, a statement which was in all likelihood strictly true, and which perhaps throws light on the character of the Boeotian population. But Posenius wanted not the money but the men. Atagonas made his escape, but Posenius refused to punish in their father's stead his children, who were handed over to him. The others surrendered themselves, relying, it is said, on securing their safety by their wealth. But Posenius took them hastily to the isthmus, and there put them all to death. A year later, in 477 B.C., Posenius, as admiral of the Confederate fleet, sailed to cyprus and thence having recovered the greater part of the island to byzantion where the resistance seems to have been as obstinate as at cestos the place was however at length reduced and posenius stood at the head of a triumphant confederacy which owned the headship of sparta sparta had now the opportunity of welding the broken elements of hellenic society into something like an organized national life but she had never deliberately sought her present position, which had rather been thrust upon her, and in her generals and statesmen she found, unfortunately, her greatest enemies. Power and wealth, and chiefly, it would seem, power, had already turned the head of Posenius. He had had his own name as supreme leader, Archegos of the Hellenes, inscribed on the tripod which commemorated the victory at Plataea, and the indignant Spartans erased his name, substituting for it the names of the cities which had taken part in the battle. But the fall of Byzantion seems to have inspired him seriously with the thought that as a tributary of the Persian king he might make himself permanent sovereign of the whole Greek world. He may have intended that his tributary character should be merely nominal, or he may have left this question to be decided by the course of events, but he entered on the path of intrigue and of treason by sending to Xerxes the prisoners taken in the city, spreading at the same time the report that they had escaped. The story of his treasons is of importance chiefly in its alleged bearing on the later life of Themistocles, and therefore each incident must be carefully noted. Soon after the dismissal or escape of the prisoners, he sent by the hands of an Eretrian named Gongalas a letter to Xerxes, the wording of which Thucydides tells us was subsequently proved to be as follows. Posenius, the supreme commander of Sparta, wishing to gratify thee, sends thee the men whom he has taken prisoners in war. My purpose, if it seem good to thee, is to marry thy daughter, and to bring Sparta and the rest of Hellas under thy sway, and I think that with thy counsel I am able to do this. If then this pleases thee, send to the coast a trustworthy man through whom we may hold communication with each other. The man chosen was Artabazos, who had escorted Xerxes to the Hellespont, and who had left the field of Plataea as soon as the issue of the day was decided against the Persians. The answer sent through Artabazos assured Posenius 
that his name was enrolled in the list of the benefactors of the king for his good deed in freeing the byzantion prisoners and besought him to spare neither time men nor money for the immediate accomplishment of his schemes it must be noted that so far as appears from the narrative no harm happened to gongolas for taking the letter of posenius to the king nor is there any reason to doubt that the letter however it may have been worded was answered although we may well suppose that the spirit of cyrus or darius would have been roused to rage at the presumption of the petty chief who aspired to an alliance with the royal house of persia on the score not of anything that he had done for thus far he had only dealt some terrible blows on the persian power but of what he hoped to be able to do by and by any doubts which we may feel will have reference not to the receipt of an answer by posenius but to its preservation especially when circumstances had arisen which made the keeping of such a document a highly imprudent and dangerous measure conspirators are generally careful to get rid of compromising papers especially when these papers are quite unnecessary and the spartan conspirator would least of all be tempted to keep them but if it be not likely that he would keep letters from the king which if discovered would bring about his condemnation it is immeasurably less likely that he would keep copies of his own letters to the persian sovereign and in no other way could they possibly become known to thucydides or to any other european one letter written by posenius is said to have been brought to the spartan ephors it was the letter entrusted to an argilian slave but in that letter there was the strict charge that the bearer should be put to death and according to his account not one of the previous messengers of posenius had ever returned from susa in other words they had all been put to death how then could the contents of the letters which they carried ever be made known it is hard to believe that they would be returned to any one from the archives of susa and still more hard to convince ourselves that they would be placed in the hands of the king's enemies the conclusion to which we are driven is that the letters from posenius to xerxes as we have them are forged and if these are forged then beyond a doubt the letters of themistocles to the persian despot are forged also but as we have seen there is no reason for supposing that gongolas the eretrian had been put to death and certainly it is possible that the letters enjoining the death of the messengers may have been written after his return but thucydides draws no distinction between one set of letters and another and the assertion of the argilian that no previous messengers had returned is unqualified he speaks indeed of subsequent discoveries as showing the contents of the letters sent by gongolas but he does not say that he had himself seen the letter and we cannot extract from his words any assurance of its genuineness there remains one further consideration which in dealing with a spartan's career cannot be lightly passed by the spartan education was miserably defective and writing was a rare accomplishment there is no reason to suppose that posenius possessed it and it is strange that his scribe should exhibit a power of writing altogether beyond that of the secretary of mindaras 
who seventy years afterwards announced in exactly eleven words the death of his master and the destruction of the spartan fleet at kizikas who again was this trusty scribe who could be made acquainted not only with his treacherous schemes but with the injunctions that the bearers of his letters should be put to death and how is it that this scribe was not brought forward as a witness on the trial of his master we are thus left in complete uncertainty as to the terms of the letters from posenius to xerxes if we accept the answers of the persian king as genuine we can but say that his memory seems to have been by no means retentive his gratitude was easily earned if the deliverance of some prisoners from byzantion could wipe out the remembrance of the carnage and ruin of the field of plataea this however is a minor difficulty we cannot doubt that artabazos was sent down to take charge of the satrapy of daskilion and to carry on the negotiations with the spartan leader the head of this unhappy man was now fairly turned clothing himself in persian garb he aped the privacy of oriental despots and when he came forth from his palace it was to make a magnificent progress through thrace surrounded by egyptian and median bodyguards the rumours which went abroad about his strange behaviour led to his recall but although he was put on his trial nothing conclusively establishing his guilt could according to spartan procedure be proved against him he was formally acquitted but at the same time deprived of his command this degradation brought him down from a power rarely enjoyed by spartan kings and to posenius it was intolerable he soon found his way again to byzantion where he seems to have taken up a fortified position from which he was dislodged by the athenians crossing the strait he carried on to Colonae his negotiations with artabazos the spartan leaders were indeed doing all that they could to transfer to athens the supremacy of sparta the king Laotychides, who had commanded the confederates at the battle of micali which completed the work of salamis had been sent to put down the Eleid chiefs of thessaly he betrayed his trust for money and being taken red-handed was banished and died in exile and on his death was succeeded by his grandson archidamus whose name is associated with the peloponnesian war the history of posenius was much of the same kind even before his recall the asiatic greeks had entreated aristides to admit them into direct relations with athens it was becoming clear that greece was now divided into two great sections the one gravitating to sparta as the great land power the other to athens as supreme by sea but athens could not yet afford to run into open quarrel with sparta and thus we can scarcely believe the story of plutarch that at the suggestion of aristides some ionian vessels attacked the ship of posenius in the harbour of byzantion and so made the idea of reconciliation impossible this result had been virtually brought about by the conduct of posenius and when some spartan commissioners headed by dorcas came to take his place they were met by a passive resistance and retiring from a field in which they were unable to compel obedience 
they left the Athenian confederacy an accomplished fact. The Spartans had no means of carrying on a war at such a distance from home, and they felt, or affected to feel, satisfaction in the thought that Athens would continue a work which to them had become irksome as well as costly. The position of the Athenians was for the time one of great difficulty. A strange poison seemed to be working in a large part of the world which claimed the Hellenic name. The disposition of the Theban and Thessalian chiefs was scarcely more satisfactory than it had been before and during the invasion of Xerxes, and Laotychides had shown himself almost as corrupt as Posanius, who was again busy with his treasons under the conviction that everything might be made to yield to Persian gold. To promote this work of corruption, Posanius seems to have brought about the mission of Arthmias of Zelea to the Greek cities generally, and the constant complaints urged against him so wearied the Spartans that they charged him, on pain of being declared the enemy of the people in case of refusal, to follow the messenger sent to summon him home. Relying on his wealth, he returned, and the ephors threw him into prison. But even now nothing could be definitely proved against him, and being set free, he challenged his accusers once and for all to establish their charges or to withdraw them. Their efforts could do nothing more than raise a presumption against him, for Spartan law could be satisfied with nothing less than the actual verbal confession of the prisoner. Helots came forward to say that he had promised them not only freedom but citizenship if they would give their help in making him a despot, but he had not been heard to tempt them, and their assertions went for nothing. Then followed the testimony of the Argilian slave, who, noticing that no previous messengers from Posanius to the Persian king had come back from Susa, opened his letter and found in it the order for his own death. But strange to say of this letter, which the Argilian is said to have handed to the ephors, Thucydides has not left us a copy, nor has he given us even a summary of its contents, nor can we say that he ever saw it. Even now the ephors declared that they must have oral testimony to supplement this written evidence. The device which they hit upon to obtain it was to send the Argilian as a suppliant to the Temenas or sacred ground of Poseidon at Cape Tynaron, and there in a hut which had double walls, to listen themselves to the conversation between the slave and his master. Posanius, it seems, soon came to ask what had led him to take a step so strange. The slave retorted by asking what he had done to merit the doom of death for bearing his letter to Xerxes. Candidly confessing the wrong which he had designed to do him, Posanius now assured him with a solemn oath that no mischief should befall him if he would only make haste on his errand and not delay the progress of the negotiations. With this evidence, even Spartan ephors must be satisfied. Some of them made up their minds to arrest him, but one ephor, as Posanius met them, contrived to make a sign warning him of danger, and to point to the sanctuary of Athena of the brazen house, Chalcioikos. In the little cell of the temple, Posanius hurriedly took refuge, 
but he was wholly without means of sustenance and the magistrates taking off the roof and walling up the doors left him to starve a story was told that while the ephors were yet doubting what they should do his mother without uttering a word laid a brick which she had brought at the door of the building and then departed as silently as she came when hunger had all but ended its work they drew him out and after his death they buried his body near the sanctuary abandoning their first thought of hurling it into the chiatus or chasm for receiving the corpses of criminals but by removing a suppliant the ephors had put themselves technically in the wrong and an order came from delphi telling them that the body of posenius must be buried on the spot where he died and that the deity of the brazen house must be appeased with two bodies instead of one in earlier ages this would have been followed by a double human sacrifice the wrong was atoned for the present by the dedication of two brazen statues although we shall see that in the time of pericles it was made use of against the spartans who had tried to invoke against him the curse of chilon the date of his death cannot be fixed with precise exactness it cannot have taken place before the ostracism of themistocles b c four seventy one or later than four sixty six b c when themistocles made his escape into asia the scheme of posenius so far as we can form a judgment of it seems to have been the establishment of a despotic power in greece this power to be in the first instance exercised by himself under the hegemony or the sway of the persian king he may have been as intent on upholding the supremacy of sparta as his own but his countrymen did not so interpret his conduct there is however no material difference between the policy of posenius after the battle of plataea and the policy deliberately adopted and carried out by the spartan state toward the close of its deadly struggle with athens in the peloponnesian war end of section twenty six section twenty seven of lives of greek statesmen by george william cox this librivox recording is in the public domain read by pamela nagami Galon the picture of the greek world in the age of xerxes is not complete without a reference to the western settlements some of which attained a magnificence never reached by the parent cities whether of continental or sporadic hellas of these western colonies syracuse rose to greatness under galon who contemporaneously with the invasion of xerxes had to fight against an enemy not less formidable and who gained over that enemy a success as decisive as that which sparta and athens achieved at salamis and mycali galon moreover was invited to take part in the resistance offered to xerxes and the offer and refusal alike throw light on the relations between the eastern greeks and the younger colonies of the west in its vices as well as in its better qualities this newer world closely resembled the old there were the same tribal jealousies and disunion and there were the same feuds leading to frequent revolutions 
the same transitions from oligarchical government to tyrannies in the size of their cities and the grandeur of their temples they were almost more than rivals of their eastern kinsfolk but the marvellously rapid growth of these settlements was prodigiously aided by the advantages which they enjoyed in the soil the climate and the physical resources of the country among the despots who rose to power in these cities none perhaps was more prominent than galon who made himself master first of gala and then of syracuse sprung from an illustrious family he became general of the cavalry in the service of the despot hippocrates after the death of the latter he took up the cause of his young sons whose authority the men of gala refused to acknowledge but having defeated them in battle he put aside the youths and armed with supreme power in his own person he resolved to obtain possession of syracuse the oligarchical landowners who had been driven out by the combination of the poorer freemen with the predial serfs eagerly availed themselves of galon's help toward regaining their property and their power the former may have been restored to them the latter galon had made up his mind to keep for himself he had no need to fight for the prize which he sought on his approach the syracusan demos threw open the city gates and the great wish of his life was realized circa 485 b c gala which with syracuse marks the base of a triangle which has the southern promontory of pekinas for its apex he entrusted to his brother hieron and devoted himself with unscrupulous energy to the aggrandizement of his new home imitating persian or assyrian despots and wholesale deportations of people from one place to another he transferred to syracuse the citizens of camarina together with half the population of gala his next step was to bring the eupatrids of the sicilian towns of megara and euboea and make them citizens of syracuse the provocation which called for his interference came wholly from these oligarchs and they were gainers perhaps by the change rather than sufferers the demos which had given no cause of offence he handed over to foreign slave dealers herodotus in telling the wretched story adds emphatically that he did so because he looked on the rabble of the commons as very scurvy companions the expression indicates the vehement jealousy of the noble houses for whom citizenship was a privilege inhering in their blood and strictly confined to those in whose veins that blood was flowing in the opinion which he thus expressed galon was perhaps from his own point of view right works of marvellous splendour were carried out at athens when the democracy was attaining to its highest growth but they were achieved only because all were stirred by a common zeal for a common purpose it was vain to look for such union at syracuse and vain to look for such work as was done at athens but yet there were vast enterprises to be taken in hand for which free citizens would not be the most serviceable instruments the plans of galon made syracuse a splendid city which outgrowing the limits of ortygia began to spread over the opposite slopes of acradina he had in truth reached a height of power attained by no greek despot before him
he was virtually master of the eastern half of sicily and his army and fleet are described as in point of numbers a match for the army and fleet of xerxes four years later in 481 b c his aid was sought against this barbarian invader by envoys from athens and sparta these envoys had been rebuffed at argos they had been disowned by thessalians and boeotians the cretans had referred them to an oracle from delphi which bade them remember how little they had gained by their efforts to avenge the death of Daedalus and the wrongs and woes of helen the men of corcyra had met them with eager promises of help which they were in no hurry to fulfil from galon they expected promises not less hearty and a performance far more decisive but in this hope they were to be utterly disappointed the position and dignity of syracuse was now scarcely inferior to those of sparta or of athens nor was it strange if galon should advance claims which the two chief cities of eastern hellas should decline to admit this idea is brought out prominently in the tale which relates the interview of the athenian and spartan envoys with the syracusan despot telling him that the persian was close at hand professedly for the purpose of taking vengeance for the many wrongs done to him by the athenians but really with the design of enslaving all the greeks they entreated him in his own interest not less than in theirs to unite hand and heart with them in the great effort to break his power it is vain to think they warned him that xerxes will not come against you if we are conquered take heed betimes by aiding us you may save yourself and a good issue commonly follows wise counsel the answer of galon was a vehement expression of anger but whether it came unexpectedly or not we are not told when i sought your aid he said against the men of carchidon carthage and promised to open to you markets from which you have reaped rich gains you would do nothing and as far as lies with you this country of sicily would have been under the barbarian to this day but i have prospered and now that war threatens you you begin to remember galon i will not however deal with you as you have dealt with me i will give you two hundred triremes and twenty thousand hoplites with horsemen and archers slingers and runners i will also give corn for all the army of the greeks so long as the war may last but i will do this only on condition that i be chieftain and leader of all the greeks against the barbarians this demand it would seem was more than the spartan siagras could bear and he burst out in a strain of homeric eloquence in very truth he said would agamemnon the son of pelops mourn if he were to hear that the spartans had been robbed of their honour by gelone and the syracusans dream not that we shall ever yield it to you if you choose to aid hellas do it under the spartans if you will not have it so then stay at home but gelone was at no loss for an answer spartan friend he said quietly abuse commonly makes a man angry but i am not going to pay back insults in kind and thus far i will yield 
if you rule by sea i will rule by land and if you rule by land then i must rule on the sea it was now the turn of the athenian to be indignant and accordingly he broke out with these words king of the syracusans the hellenes have sent us not because they want a leader but because they want an army of the army you say little about the command much when you asked to lead us all we left it to the spartans to speak but as to ruling on the sea that we cannot yield we grudge not to the spartans their power on land but we will give place to none on the sea we have more seamen than all the greeks we are of all greeks the most ancient nation and we alone have never changed our land and in the war of which homer sings our leader was the best of those who came to ilion to set an army in battle array athenians answered gelon you seem likely to have many leaders but few to be led but since you will yield nothing and grasp at everything hasten home and tell the greeks that the springtime has been taken out of their year such is the tale which herodotus relates as most generally believed among the continental greeks about the conduct of galon during the persian war but the speeches on this conference betray the purpose with which they have been put together they are mere devices for reconciling the old notions of spartan supremacy with the rising empire of athens and in an effort to uphold the new position claimed by athens her envoys do not trouble themselves much about either consistency or coherency they tell gelon that he had talked at great length about the command and said little about an army the words were a flat untruth gelon had urged his claim to command in about half a dozen words he had described with minute exactness the forces which he was prepared to furnish and these would form an admirably complete armament while he further promised to maintain the whole confederate army during the whole period of the war herodotus however has the candour to tell us that there were other accounts which deprive the popular tradition of all value galon we are told in one of these stories sent cadmus of cos with a large sum of money to delphi if the persians gained the victory he was to present the money to xerxes as a peace offering if the greeks should win the victory he was to bring it back again the historian tells us that to his great credit cadmus did bring it back but this is not all he confessed there was a sicilian version which differed from both these accounts this tradition he tells us declared that in spite of the haughty refusal of the athenians and spartans to yield or share the command galon would still have aided the eastern greeks had not Terelos, the banished tyrant of Hymera, brought against him a Carthaginian host equal in number to the Persians who fought under Mardonius at Plataea, and that therefore, being unable to help them with men, he sent to Delphi a supply of money for their use. His refusal, or rather his inability to furnish an army for resisting Xerxes, is thus explained in a way which shows that the eastern greeks at least had no cause of complaint against him and which further proves that the supposed conference of the spartan and athenian envoys with galon is mere fiction by a series of great efforts 
Galon had succeeded in pushing the Carthaginians back to the west of a line drawn between the Greek cities of Hymera on the northern and Silenus on the southwestern coast of the island. But he had not succeeded in detaching these cities from their friendship for or their alliance with Carthage. Three settlements only remained to the Carthaginians within this line, and although their policy thus far had led them to avoid all wars, the rapidly growing power of Galon had convinced them that unless they made some special effort, they would lose their hold even on this western corner of the island. Their purpose was furthered by those internal feuds and quarrels among the Greeks which rendered the growth of a Greek nation impossible. With moderate combination, the Greeks would have been long ago masters of all Sicily. The same cohesion would have secured the same result for the Carthaginians. Both failed alike in the conditions indispensable for national growth, and the end was that both were absorbed in the dominion of imperial Rome. Tirilas of Hymera was expelled in consequence of some advantages gained by the Demos of that city over the oligarchic party. But the Demos gained nothing by the change. Tirilas asked the aid of Carthage, and an army, it is said, of thirty myriads, appearing under Hamilcar, the son of Hanan, took away from Galan the power, whatever may have been his will, to aid the Greeks in their struggle with Xerxes. If, then, the Sicilian version be true, and all the evidence at our command confirms it in all its details, it certainly convicts of no little malignity, and that too of a wanton sort, the tradition of the Eastern Greeks. The great battle in which Galan broke the power of Carthage was fought at Hymera. Of the details of the battle we cannot be said really to know anything. The accounts given are contradictory, one saying that Hamilcar was surprised and slain by some Sicilian troops, the other relating that he was never seen again after the fight, because on finding that the day was going against him, he leaped into the fire in which, on a huge altar, he was sacrificing whole beasts to Moloch. By Herodotus we are told that the Carthaginians raised monuments to his memory in all their colonies, as well as in Carthage itself, and worshipped him as a god. If there be any truth in this statement, the catastrophe cannot have been so tremendous as Diodorus represents it to have been. The Carthaginians were by no means in the habit of venerating men who brought their country to the verge of ruin. But in truth, a comparison of this story with that of the invasion of eastern Hellas by Xerxes shows how the same kind of fiction has molded both. Both deal in the same enormous numbers, both end with the same humiliation for the invaders. Xerxes reaches the Asiatic shore with one solitary boat, and so, too, a single vessel makes its way to Carthage with the miserable remnant of the army which Hamilcar had conveyed to Sicily in more than two thousand ships. Galon is indeed triumphant, and if he does not mercilessly slay all his enemies, it is, we are told, because he was anxious to take part in the continental war against Xerxes. To complete the fiction, we are further told that before he could set sail, the tidings came of the victory of Salamis, and that on receiving the news he summoned an armed assembly of the citizens, and going to that assembly, 
not only without weapons but even without an upper garment he entered into a minute review of his acts and of his policy and ended his speech by surrendering his power appreciating highly this confidence or suspecting a trick the syracusans hailed him with acclamation as their saviour and their king the invasion of hamilcar is placed in the same year with the invasion of greece by xerxes this is probably the truth or very near the truth but little reliance can be placed on the more minute coincidences in the story as the battles of plataea and micali are assigned to the same day so the battle of Hymera is said to have been fought on the same day with that of salamis but other versions made it synchronize with the battle in thermopylae and we thus see how loose and hollow is the ground on which we are treading but herodotus who notices these coincidences does not pretend to trace any connection between the two invasions the discovery of this connection seems to have been reserved for diodorus or for some writer whom diodorus followed according to this version the plans of hamilcar were formed definitely in concert with those of xerxes evidence for this conclusion is wholly lacking and it has been well said that carthage was far too independent both in her geographical position and by her power to be determined in her policy either by the wishes of her mother country or by the dictates of the persian king a few months after his great victory at himera galon died of dropsy his work practically died with him the sequel of the history of his dynasty is a miserable tale of faction feud and bloodshed of his three brothers hieron was to be despot of syracuse while polyzelos was to have the military command the latter was compelled to take refuge with the tyrant of acragas agrigentum a few years later 467 b c hieron died and his brother thrasybulas setting aside his nephew a son of galon revealed his merciless and vindictive disposition his subjects revolted and besieged him in ortygia and if diodorus is to be believed compelled him to surrender his power only eighteen years had passed since the foundation of the galonian dynasty at syracuse but the expulsion of the tyrants tended but little to the establishment of order and law the history of the commotions which follows shows if it may be trusted that in spite of all the violence of the time the condition of the country was more than usually healthy and prosperous a comparison of the greek colonies in sicily with those which were established in africa teaches us that both were largely influenced by the tribes whose lands they occupied while the universal failings of the greek character were brought out amongst them in an exaggerated form in sicily these faults produced a wretched harvest of feuds and war in africa they led to horrible barbarities over which it is well to draw a veil end of section twenty seven read by pamela nagami m d in encino california february twenty twenty four end of lives of greek statesmen by george william cox
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.